Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Uh, hope you guys are doing well. Um, we are in the studio at the Spotify Studios with Chris Yang, and we have um, Meg Yuno Lee. Join us again. Hi. Back. Hi, guys. Uh, we're going to talk a little about baseball. Uh, I know it's been a lot of sports, but guess what? We like sports. <laughs> Sorry. And maybe during the past three years, we weren't able to talk about it so much because there are other things going on. Um, but I promise you, it won't always be so so sports centric. But this is going to be a little bit different on how we talk about baseball. And then we have a new segment that we're going to introduce called price fixing. Price fixing, pre fee. <laughs> we invented this in the elevator on the way to the studio, <laughs> so it's another one of these ones. But I think it's gonna be fun. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be a, it's gonna <laughs> be robust. And also, uh, we have an interview. And I'm sure a lot of people may be like, hey, I want to know more or I don't want to know more. But I, I highly encourage you to stick around. We're going to talk to Marguerite Mariscal. We haven't had her on for a while just to give you guys like a state of the union of where we're at, what Momofuku is up to. And that's just going to be, you know, a quick, quick 10 minutes. So Marguerite's going to come on. We're going to chat with her for a little bit. And we're going to have Melissa Facina of City Capital. And that's S-I-D-D-H-I. And they're our new partner in the Momofuku Goods CPG world. Um, I've gotten to know her really well, and I wanted to pick her brain not only about her fascinating life, but she has really harder knowledge about how the things that you eat, the things that get on your plate work. So yes, it's also an opportunity to give everyone some insight about what we're doing as a whole from the Momofuku angle. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. All right, guys. I am, listen, it's hard for me to admit this, but I'm actually very excited about baseball season. And it's not just about the World Baseball Classic. I really loved baseball growing up. Um, my father used to take us to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore to watch doubleheaders because it was a better value. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd be there for like 16 hours. <laughs> um, you know, the, the idea that everyone proclaims it's a great place to bring your family. We're going to talk about that in a second. I have massive reservations about that statement. But we're going to talk about food, stadium food, baseball, Americana. Um, but I'm excited about it. And this is why I wanted to talk about it. Baseball was clearly one of the most popular sports and then died a quick death, quite frankly, over the past 20 years. When I say death, no one gives a shit about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Really. 
even if you look on ESPN, it's like not even in p- part of the top column. It wasn't that way in the 90s and the 80s. You have some people that are diehard fans like you know, because he's a, you know. Weirdo. Weirdo Dodgers <laughs> fan. But again, I guess I would be too if you had a good team. Um, but, you know, baseball to me is boring. Mm. It's so boring. If you're not into sports, I get it. I know we've been talking about sports a lot, but I highly encourage you to sort of just like listen to this conversation we're about to have about baseball because they've done something that I think is pretty remarkable. They've addressed, whether it works or not, we'll see, they've addressed the existential threats to baseball as a whole. And you couldn't get, you couldn't buy lower on baseball, quite frankly. And that's why I'm like, I think we're going to see a resurgence in baseball. I believe in all the maneuvers that are doing because I'm actually excited about it. Some of the things that are introducing are a pitch clock. They had that in minor league baseball, but who gives a shit about minor league baseball? Because most people don't give a shit about major league baseball. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to, I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic. And they remove the shift, right? Which if you don't know, there's a lot of analytics if you watch Moneyball or read that book, Moneyball by Michael Lewis, that was the beginning of sabermetrics and data, which led to you know the World Series for the Red Sox, popularized by the Oakland A's, et cetera, et cetera. Now, every team is utilizing data to the point where it's almost not fun to watch anymore. Uh, batting averages are down, home runs are up, no one's stealing bases anymore. You know, it's it, they're playing to the lowest common denominator and the joy of baseball, in my opinion, for me, has been sucked out of it. Mm-hmm. They've addressed these rules. We'll see if it works. I know you know as a big baseball fan, so we're going to talk all about all of this. Like Chang, I was deeply, deeply into baseball during college. Like I read Baseball Prospectus and would just like watch every single pitch and be like, the next one's going to be a curveball. This one's going to be a slider. Oh, he's just, his his off speed is is off today. Whatever. Fucking it got so fucking nerd. boring. Nerd. It got so nerd. boring. But also, baseball suffered from this. What a nerd. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> he still does it. So. <laughs> but baseball suffered from this boring problem. And it also suffered from, like, you, like you, the, the players were anonymous. Like, unless you really paid attention. You had no idea who these guys were or what they sounded like. But forgive me if I'm wrong, you know, but it seems like only in the last few seasons they started doing these on-field interviews, like, players mic'd up with earpieces in, in the field, talking, which is which says two things about baseball to me. One, it's so slow and so boring that players who are in the middle of the game can take time to speak to <laughs> an announcer, can take time out of the game they are in the middle of playing to talk, to do an interview. That's how boring and slow it is. But two, I think to Dave's point, they started to address like the existentially boring parts of this, which is, I don't know who this player is, but now I can talk to him while he's, oh shit, the ball's being hit to him. He's still I'm hearing him huff and puff as he runs towards the ball and like catches it. Like that's kind of cool. It's a rarity when you find something in the world and culture where they make some dramatic shifts and they're able to do that in a closed system that is Major League Baseball. And I like it because it's been a methodical approach. They've analyzed the problem. They've hopefully identified the problems, they've tested out the hypothesis of pitch counts, et cetera, et cetera. So that is what actually fascinates me more than baseball. Clearly, I, I don't give a shit about baseball prospectus, all these things, but I love it just like I would care about fashion or something like that. It's not the the artifact itself I care about. I love it, the, 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 the system and everything. And is it possible that we can learn some of these things 
in the restaurant world and other parts of culture. So that is one way of how I look at it. But, you know, I just wanted to get that out of the way. But for the, what I really want to get to is I have been told time and time again, now that we're in Los Angeles, you got to take your kids. You got to take your kids to Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's amazing. Daytime games, nighttime games. No. I just wanted to say, regardless of how much I like baseball, that'll be from the confines of a couch. I will never, I will not say never. I will go with friends. I'll probably go with you two guys. <laughs> but I'm not going to bring my kids. Mm-hmm. Th- that is like, well, that's like a, <laughs> <laughs> an Iron Maiden. I, I, I don't want to do that. Like nine innings of hell. I don't give a shit if they shave off an hour of the game. <laughs> that is going to be hell on earth. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's hell on earth? Just for the length of I'm the time? Bored. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> Dad. It oh, yeah, I'm going to see Hugo with his shoes off, standing in a puddle of beer yeah. and popcorn well, on the floor. I agree. <laughs> bathing that in it. I, I, I can't imagine taking a kid to this sporting event and you want them to, like the whole thing is that you got to look at the game. But they have, it's, it's not their fault. They have no fucking idea what's happening out there. And most of the time, nothing is happening out there. Most of the time, nothing is happening. A hundred mile per hour fastball does not impress a kid. <laughs> They're just like, that little white speck is moving over there. And then just move back. And then I move that way again. Like this is, it's Pong. It's taking them to a live grassy field to watch Pong. And they're just not interested. More than one friend that I have, more than one, I say several, have said one of their great accomplishments, these are big diehard baseball fans, was bringing their kid or two kids and they stayed the duration without really any problem. I'm like... That is uh, dream, dream a little smaller. Yeah, <laughs> was that that's an achievement? Like, no. I I took I took Ruby to a game with some friends up in San Francisco, and I agree that it is a money and soul sucking endeavor to try to keep them engaged with this game because I've got to buy, I've got to wow them with a new crappy ballpark snack every inning. Just you've never had this before. I don't like that. Uh, do you want these crappy nachos? I don't want those either. Okay, here's some Cracker Jacks, whatever, whatever. There was a point where just because like, we went with two diehard baseball fans, they were so invested in my child having a good time at the game, they started paying her money when things would happen. <laughs> they were like, oh, look, the, yeah. they're Dodgers fans. The Dodgers got a hit. Ruby, here's a dollar. And she was like, what are you paying me? Paying, yeah. This is not baseball specific, but taking Ruby to this game, the games are so long. And in the daytime, you have just like drunk assholes getting drunker and drunker for seven innings. And just like the shit that was coming out of their mouths around my daughter, I was like, this is fucking like I have a foul mouth, but I I don't just like say horrible shit at the top of my lungs around my daughter for four straight fucking hours. Like, I don't want my kids to learn that stacking cups as high as you can (laughs) is a thing. (laughs) It's like a cool thing to do. That's a terrible idea at home. I don't want them to learn that shit. Again, something you do when you're really bored <laughs> stack cups <laughs> up and down you know seventh inning stretch like what the fuck is that anyway you know baseball will be great potentially 
What are your thoughts? Would you be, this is sort of like a impromptu dads. Are you going to bring your child? To Has it occurred to you to be excited about that? Have you thought to yourself, I can't wait to take my kid to their first baseball game? So actually, yeah, I did think that before I had a kid, right? So, cause you don't have the reality of like, Hey, I have to keep you entertained. I have to figure out what you're going to do for the next like nine innings. You were thinking about yourself and how magical it would be for you. Absolutely. I was like, yeah. dude, I would love to take you to a game. I can't wait to take you behind home plate. Typical buy all the food you selfish eat. pre-dad. <laughs> <laughs> got a, got a, a mid already le- oiled up with a ball yeah. in it. No, for sure. <laughs> They're going to love me. They're going to sit on my shoulders. For me and all that. I'm just like, dude, we're going to do this. And it is still something like a lofty goal of mine to, to want him to, uh, to see if he likes baseball first, and then if he likes it, um, to get him engaged to the point where he can sit through a game, keep score, you know, casually eat some some something palatable, and then um, which I, I think we're getting to that, and then just enjoy the game, you know, and appreciate the fact that he's there. And you could watch it at home. You could watch it at home, and I think that we're, most of it's going to start out watching at home until he's like, "What's it like actually being a guy in the stands?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Oh shit, let me show you, son." I'm going to show you what this magical thing's all about. And I think you need to start out playing, watching it on TV to build an appreciation for actually being there because of tension. Like, baseball is a game of constant tension. You know, like, think about all the data that goes into all these decisions that, that, are, that result in the product on the field. And then the most likely thing is that the guy is going to fail. Like, that's, he's up to bat and he hopes to hit, but, like, if he has a 35% success rate, like, he's one of the best players on the planet, right? Like, he's going to go up there and fail, but if he succeeds, it's like, oh, shit. You know, like, that's awesome. I'm so bored listening to this. Yeah, <laughs> I was just like, just going, yeah. Oh, my you God. Know what, you know what kids are amazing at? Delayed gratification. <laughs> They're just like, let me watch seven at-bats I mean, before something happens. You know what I just did, you know? I almost did what I did in high school. I did one of these things. <laughs> <laughs> you, you made the you made the hand gesture where it's like I'm thinking hard, but actually I'm, I'm trying, trying to sleep, sleep a little bit. I'm sleeping a little sleep. in my hand. I'm like I did this my entire career, and I re- legitimately thought you're getting away with it. Know. Yeah, where you're like you're <laughs> furrowed so brow, hard. just like moving your hands and your eyes. You know what I'm doing? I almost pulled that. I almost pulled that. Yeah, and you're sitting right in front of you. But okay. This is the thing, why I really wanted to get to. If baseball is overhauling, really, 150 years of tradition, overnight for the most part, why can't they overhaul the baseball classic foods? Because I would say, not only baseball games boring, there's great food, and even we have food, we, there's great foods now that are not traditional baseball foods at um, stadiums, with the exception of San Francisco's bullshit garlic fries, almost every other fucking stadium has like really good food, sure from chains, etc. Right, but I'm just simply talking about the baseball classic foods. He's really mad that I just made fun of San Francisco fries again, even though he hates it too. <laughs> no, just low hanging fruit. <laughs> it's the worst fries in the world. They're so good, so gross. <laughs> The parsley doesn't make it any better, guys. Yeah, so much <laughs> parsley. Um, and they sell it with truffle oil, too. Right, right? Mm, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Why can't, you know, part of this is experience bringing your child there or just if you haven't been to a baseball game in a long time because of the pandemic. And I'm, I'm just saying, like, I have a feeling, my gut is telling me that baseball is going to be part of the, the, the mainstream conversation again. It just is. Um, 
I'm buying baseball stock. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, but I am. <laughs> All right? You're doing it right now. Chris is falling asleep. I'm falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, but like, well, so why can't they update baseball food classics? Because my opinion is Cracker Jacks fucking suck. All, not just baseball pretzels, but all stadium pretzels suck. Unless they were Auntie Anne's or the other one, Wetzel's. Which is the one that you actually... Okay. Wetzel's. You like Wetzel's. I love Wetzel's. I'm an Auntie Anne's. Yeah. Man. That would be amazing. Hmm. Amazing. Really. Why do, why do those other shitty pretzels exist? And a recent invention in stadium food of the past 35 plus years are the crappiest nachos in the world. The same nachos you get at a movie theater. Yeah. With their 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 circular circular chip. And they they have a it's like a lunchable, you know what I mean? Like well, this like, is a, the, like the, a jello pudding oh. thing of cheese. And here's the fucking crazy thing. Let alone the tortilla chips suck. <laughs> but that is just a given. Yeah. The the cheese container the diameter of it is not big <laughs> enough for a full dip of those stupid goddamn tortilla chips. So yeah. all in, one of the worst food things I've ever had well, as it's a not, stadium It's food. not nachos. It would be if you said, hey, Chris, can you make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And I said, sure, here's a bag of bread and a jar of peanut butter <laughs> and some jelly on the side. Here's your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Nachos are not a little thing of chips with a little thing of cheese over here <laughs> and then some jalapenos in also, another it's compartment. A, it's a terrible food. It's a yeah, double-handed it's thing you need to do. It's yucky. You know, I'm sure maybe in one of the stadiums there's like real nachos, but I don't, I, I, that's an urban myth. I don't believe it. <laughs> Peanuts, you know why they're only good at baseball stadiums? Let me tell you, this is exactly why. There's no benefit to shelling your own peanuts, all right? The only reason to – there's any enjoyment to shelling your own peanuts is it's something to do because you're so fucking bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, it's true. Sure. You're just shelling it. It's the same thing why baseball players chew sunflower seeds. Like, no, oh, it's something a, to do. It's an authoritarian tactic. They're keeping us engaged by giving us work to do. <laughs> they might as well just have us make license plates while we're watching the game. And and here's the, the last one that is uh, so un-American that Joe McCarthy would have mm. persecuted me in the 50s. Hot dogs in stadiums are fucking terrible. They're so bad. They're terrible, terrible, terrible. The condiment stands are always garbage. I don't want relish. I don't want a foot long. I don't want a Dodgers dog. And I don't listen. I want a good hot dog, but they're almost never fucking grilled properly. They're almost always steamed and boiled. Nothing is worse than the hot dog. And I don't, I I think I read somewhere that I don't like dirty water hot dogs. You don't fucking know me. (laughs) (laughs) You have to be in a certain state of being super fucked up to enjoy it. Right? And that is a state where, shit, everything's closed, but this guy's here selling mm-hmm. fucking hot dogs. Then it's a life-saving fucking adventure. Mm-hmm. But when you see the hot dog dude come down, that's not good. I, hot dogs, synonymous with baseball games. It needs an upgrade. 
So everything that's a baseball classic. And, my, and the worst thing is cotton candy. As a parent, I'd argue that cotton candy is the greatest markup in the history of the world, including um, pharmaceutical companies, including <laughs> cocaine, uh-huh. including like, you know, microprocessing chips, anything that's a valuable thing. Nothing percentage-wise has been marked up more than cotton candy. It's one of the great ripoffs of all time. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking scam. Sure. And what's enjoyable about it from a parent's perspective? As a kid, it's great. Uh, <laughs> shit's everywhere, you know. And you can't share it unless nobody pulls it off entirely. You yeah. can't share it. Your, your, fin- your fingers get sticky. I, I, I just dislike it intensely. But. It's a ripoff. You don't. What does it sell for? Like 12, 13 bucks? No, cotton candy is eight. 12 bucks. Yeah. 12 oh. bucks for cotton candy? For a yeah. bag of cotton candy? Yeah. It's and I'd argue that it's like, if you have a sugar packet, it's probably half a sugar packet to get one thing of cotton candy. $12 of oh, like the three flavored big bag of cotton candy, maybe no, 12 just bucks. No, like a standard size that comes yeah. out of the vendor. Yeah, probably 13 f- bucks. Fuck at it. Check, look, <laughs> look, check the price. What is, it, what is cotton it's candy? It's just inflating to me. Yeah, what is, what is cotton candy? What is cotton candy? My computer's dead. I have no idea. But here's my thing. You're putting on your consumer advocate hat. Why can't it be better? Cotton candy's a ripoff. Peanuts are suppressing or oppressing us. Cracker Jacks, all the nuts fall to the bottom. What's the point? Stupid, stupid, stupid. You don't admire the hustle a little bit? No. If you could sell cotton candy, if you could sell a teaspoon of sugar for 13 bucks, you wouldn't do it? Yeah, there's things that I wish that I did. Like I sold coffee because it's a fucking legal drug. And uh, I wish I was the cotton candy king. <laughs> That's what we call you behind your back, though. <laughs> Cotton Candy King. Because I, you know, should it all be upgraded? What? Okay, let's let's try. Let's play this game then. What are the What are the analogs? It probably costs legitimately three cents to make one twelve dollar cone of cotton candy. At most, yeah, three cents, five cents. Would you agree? Energy plus sugar, yeah, yeah. That's five like cents. a. I can't do the math, but that's like a hundred percent. 200% markup. That's way more than 200%. <laughs> 200%, 300%, Dave, 400%, 1,000%. No, it's like a 5,000% markup. <laughs> That's what I'm legitimately saying without hyperbole. I think it is the number one most, especially with commercially purchased things, mm-hmm. right, that are legal, the highest markup in the world ever. Yeah. Can you think of something else that has because it's not such even a low like, cost to make? Because a, a pharmaceutical company could make the argument, sure, the pills don't cost that much to make, but we invested a billion dollars in R&D. Cotton candy doesn't have that <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't put that much money into R&D. You know? They just spun some hair out of sugar, and then you eat it. Yeah, I think of cotton candy the same way you think of like cocaine. It's like it's a it's a distribution problem, right? Like I loved cotton candy as a kid, man. <laughs> it's great as you're a kid, but as a as a parent, like do you like you already feel getting ripped off when you go to a stadium? I'm just letting you know I you are a straight is, sucker when I you buy cotton the, candy for your kids. No, but you see so the two conversations we're having, I don't want to bring my kids and the food sucks are actually connected. The cotton candy, the hot dog, the peanuts, the Cracker Jacks, all that shit is an investment in hooking the next generation on the drug, right? If they, if they, are, what do you, what do you want Can them to offer? Can you divide, um, 
18 bucks by 2000. What? 18 bucks by 2000. 0.009. That's the cost of a sugar packet. <laughs> One pack, 18 bucks, 2000 pack, 2000 uh, packets of one ounce sugar for the price of 18 bucks. Nine tenths of a penny. I, I don't under, I didn't follow any of that math, but I agree. Just divide it's 18 a, bucks a, by 2000. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like sort of retail price too. But it's, a, it's 1800 divided by 2000. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's a huge markup. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's about one, one package of, but what sure. do you think? Four okay, grams, five here's, grams. Here's, here's my question though. Is there a reason why everything at a ballpark has to be eaten with your hands? There are like few places, few places on the, earth this, that I want the sitting less the situation. Touch yeah. my food. And eat I've, it with I've my seen hands the little mouth. trays that you you get like the like the movie theater that has the cup holders on the sides and then like a little square in the middle for you to eat on. And even then, like the only thing you're eating a fork is fries. But so, so is the argument that the hot question. dog should be better or that hot dog should be replaced by a different staple food? We're showing real innovation in baseball. We're challenging the actual fabric of baseball itself. Why can't we also encourage an overhaul of the traditional American classics that you get at a baseball stadium? And the reason I'm saying this is there's been an influx of all this other great food with the exception of San Francisco fucking garlic fries across stadiums around the country. Why? So people clearly love it. Mm-hmm. What are, why are we holding to garbage? Well, it starts today. No, it's never going to happen. I'm just letting people no, know. It's, it, Particularly, it's garbage. I don't want... The thing that probably would drive me more crazy if Hugo would be like, I want this. I got to have peanuts. I got to have a I fucking pretzel. Nostalgia, right? Like, it's got to taste the same as it used, always used to. And it's folks who keep going out to these ballparks. It's a great philosophy to have. But not enough people are complaining. It's not driving people away from the game is the problem. The length of the game was losing people. Well, the food is losing me. <laughs> <laughs> you are already lost. I mean, you can bring <laughs> your own food in the Dodger Stadium, which right. begs the question, like, what's a good food that you bring Here's where I draw the I don't want to do that either. Really? Okay. I don't want to do that. I mean, nothing's worth it when you're on, I want to compare this like an airplane and somebody sits down and they bring out all this food that you're like, shut, just stop. Just, <laughs> yeah, don't be a Eat dick. Eat a bag of peanuts and shut the fuck also, up. Also, that's just more work for me to be bored. <laughs> like, I, now I had to make double effort to bring food to the boring thing. Oh my god! That being said, we used to we used to eat fucking amazing pambasas in Oakland. We would pick up in Fruitvale; is very good. Can I ask as a side question? When sitting down in a stadium, if you have the opportunity to not get up, but your Space still just... allows somebody to get through if you don't stand up, right? Because you have the chair that is fully now down. So, you, you know, if it's up, you have like two feet of space. But when you're sitting down, it's like eight inches with your legs. Some stadiums give you more room than others. But if you're sitting down and you're like three or four seats in from the aisle and it's uh, people are getting in and out, do you not get up because you have food on your your legs and you oh. force the other person to scoot by and curse your name. 
<sighs> you asking the wrong guy. I, I got my knees knocked against the chair in front of me. So uh, <laughs> six. Yeah. You have to get up. I yeah. have to get up every time. He has to leave the stadium. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> Going to the aisle. Um, no, that's absolutely. It's a no brainer. I have to get up, and it's it's kind of a bummer. Food in your lap is the only thing that gave me pause. I hate the person who thinks. Oh, I can, and it's never, it's never actually a small person who's just like, let me pivot my knees and let you buy. It's never actually a small child who does that. No, the people like me. It's always you. (laughs) It's always Dave who's like, well, everybody else stood up, but, uh, I'm going to provide one more obstacle. The penitent man shall pass shit over here. I'm just like, no, I mean, I'll do it once. Here's the thing. I'll do it once, maybe twice, but I'm not getting up three times for anybody. Are you like keeping track in your head with the clicker? Oh, oh, like, no, no, I, I know, I know who the fuck's sitting in my row. You know, food in the lap. Yeah, that's tough. I've been there where you're just thinking. I've gotten up for you guys a bunch of times. Now I ask you for one thing: let me eat my shitty nachos in peace, <laughs> I mean, and you won't give it to me. You Murray Giants team, I can just eat a onigiri. It's delicious. One hand. There's so many one-handed fo- fucking foods. You know. I can eat rice crackers, but way better than fucking. The only thing I'll give to classic and classic baseball food is popcorn. Oh, that's pretty good. Like that's like. Yeah, but you know, that's just a general. Yeah, it's like, come on, it's like Empire Strikes Back. You gotta love it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Is there is there a logistical reason as somebody who has operated in stadiums? Is there a logistical reason the food can't be better? I think it's. Americana and the stubbornness to change. Just nostalgia. So this whole podcast is a metaphor <laughs> for American stubbornness. Yeah. And inability to change that clearly baseball is willing to do now, which is shocking to me. Well, that is the, to, to bring it all home to what you originally said. Baseball has traditionally been the poster child for nostalgia for, uh, you talk about sabermetrics and all this. So many managers and teams just resisted it in favor of just, there's just an X factor. You can't you can't quantify the X factor, right? It was always old boy, old boys club rules, and that was reflected in the fan base too. I, I'm there for buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. What are we gonna change the fucking song now, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna change the song? Like you can't do that. Like that's not yes. That's but that's what I'm saying. Democratic for public Yes, that's the attitude, right? That and baseball was always the poster child for we're about tradition. We're about nostalgia. We're about doing things the old fashioned long ass way. But to your point, they changed something. I, that's what I'm trying to say. If baseball's willing to change this, then everything is on the table. Everything's on the fucking table. Right? Maybe. So they get the, get, no one likes Cracker Jacks. You know what I was going to say? You, know, you love Cracker Jacks? I love Cracker Jack. Why? The toy. It's just delicious. The it's just good with beer. That's like when I... There's so many things good with beer. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait, wait. I, I, I argue that premise. <laughs> cracker Jacks are good with you beer. You know what's better than Cracker Jacks? Popcorn. <laughs> yeah. No, cracker, cracker Jacks. Jacks I love popcorn. caramel corn, but Cracker Jacks with beer is not a thing. No, weirdly, like the molasses makes me thirsty. So I actually just want to like drink a beer. The molasses yeah. makes me thirsty? <laughs> this just occurred to me. If the food were better at baseball games, I would go. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Food is already good. There's, it's just not the traditional baseball stadium food. That's all I'm saying. They're, they're, food has been elevated in every stadium in the country. 
with the exception of the traditional nostalgic baseball foods. That has to and, uh, but when I say the food has to but but okay. Yes, yes, sort of. When I say the food has to be better, I mean you have to change those things because yeah, maybe there's a, a Shake Shack or a Fuku, but there it like the nachos and the hot dogs are available in every single section wherever you are sitting in the stadium. Sometimes I go to a stadium and I know there's something delicious on the other side. I'm not going to go over there. That's that's a good point. It's, it's so t- so the traditional stuff has to change. I'm saying if there were better stuff, I was I was a little skeptical about this whole premise. But as somebody who hasn't gone to a baseball game for a long time now, I would go. Well, so, listen, I'm going to end it on this. They can up. <laughs> there's so many arguments here. They could simply upgrade the pretzel, right? I'm not saying get rid of it. Make it fucking better. The pretzels are the worst. They're so bad. Nobody, I, I just, you know, those, the generic pretzels that are sold there in carnivals and just you only find there. That you're from like the food service industry, like you get it from a Cisco or something like that, or U.S. Foods. That traditional pretzel. I mean, you don't smoke in stadiums anymore. Why? Why are we keeping that? Is something that can clearly get better. I know this is how weird my brain is. It fucking angers me that we have to continue to eat this garbage fucking pretzel, and people who eat it up. People eat it up is the problem. There are better pretzels. You have, you have, this is the same. We were we were standing together in Tomorrowland, and I was listening to this anti-pretzel rant from this guy at Disneyland eating yeah, this the Mickey pretzel. Wanted, I'm like, what did I tell you? You want to spend forty eight bucks? I think it was on pretzels and a jalapeno pretzel like that on the worst pretzel. I mean. Come on. <laughs> but the, my point is. It really was that worst doughy, crappy pretzel. My point is, like, I, I got this. I got this tirade before. Behind him as he's delivering his Sermon on the Mount to me <laughs> is a fucking 38-person long line waiting for Mickey pretzels, okay? So he's just, he's, he's literally preaching to the choir. <laughs> like behind him are the, are the Scientologists lining up for their pretzels. I mean, I, I realize I sound like Larry David here. This should be a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. But I genuinely don't, it has to change. And the fact that you wouldn't need to buy that I think I bought it for you too. I was so <laughs> he mad. Did. He did. And you were like, oh, you got the cheese sauce. I was like, you said cheese sauce to go to nachos? What are you doing? And I looked at Hugo and I'm, I'm so sorry, man. <laughs> so sorry you're going to have to go to And he this. was so happy. And I was like, stop out. I was it. not, no, no, no. I, did, I agreed with you that the pretzels were gross. You were happy. That pizza. Because we weren't Disneyland. That, that pizza, though. <laughs> Every, I think that's the best deal. By the way, tomorrow on the best deal. This is a, this is a real life hack. Order online and get the child slice, child's pizza, because for some reason it's like sixteen dollars cheaper it's than, like a slice. than a single slice, and you get a whole personal pan pizza and, and apple slices and milk. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you get, the pizza for cheaper. Yeah, it's so much. It's the best. The best deal in Disneyland is at Tomorrowland. The yeah, the space and you know what? Pizza By place. trying new things out, because I have an open mind, you can discover things. Unlike Chris Yang over here. What is this turning? <laughs> I was arguing, agreeing with this point. Listen, I could, as you guys can clearly understand and see, I just want to get rid of these crappy pretzels. That's it. And I'm not going to take you go to a baseball game, and you guys are. You already have. 
I did. Let's go to a soccer game, though. Like, Hugo's not going to like that either. He really took him to that uh, Kansas City, literally on the 50-yard line, the first fucking row. We think, didn't last that in the quarter. I think they have La Palma burritos at LAFC. Okay, hold on. You guys just dunked on baseball for being boring, and you want to go to a soccer game? Yeah. Oh, no. I didn't say I wanted to go to soccer game. I know. Oh, Chris. Oh. At least things are happening all the time in soccer. There's the, something always happening just, in baseball. What are they doing? Oh shit! The center fielder shifted five feet to his <laughs> left. He's playing. He's playing no double plays. Oh, all, right, all, right, all right, all right, all right. You know, all right, I just right. wanted to let the world know that you're a Dodgers fan. All right, we're gonna take a break. When we come back, no more sports talk. I promise. We're gonna do our segment called Prefi Price Fix. Price fixing. Price fixing. Yeah, just like sports. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, we're back. So, you know, can you explain the game here? I can't, but uh, I'll try. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take this menu, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list off menu items from a restaurant that we're going to uh, – I'll just pick at random. And then uh, basically I'll pick menu items. You guys tell me how much you think it is, and then we'll go off of how close you guys are. It doesn't always have to be fancy restaurants or just restaurants in general. And I think it's going to be more impactful when we have the studio, and it's going to be like you can put it on the screen, and you can see the menu yourself. But – if Yunos has a restaurant, go look at it up right now. Put it on your phone and just try to see the menu online. And he's going to say a couple items, maybe a bottle of wine, whatever, some menu item. And then we're going to have to guess how much it is. And it's I think it's a really interesting way of talking about the restaurant, what they're trying to do, where it is. It's going to be a test of our – it's like when they ask a politician how much a gallon of milk is. And we're going to see like how, how in touch we are with – Current pricing with restaurant pricing with these specific items. When you give the restaurant, though, give like the most generic description so people understand. Like and, whatever it says on Google, if it says upscale spot for new American eats, <laughs> just give us the most basic thing. And then it's whoever gets it closest, like prices right. Closest, okay. closest, closest or without closest without going over. Yeah. 
Oh, you can closest. go over. You can okay. go over. Closest. Go over. It's going to be tough if it's not okay. over, yeah. So one dollar at everything. <laughs> so, come on. All right. So, our first restaurant is going to be Capo in Santa Monica. What is Capo to is you? It's just a nice Italian restaurant. But it's a sophisticated setting for upscale Italian meat, seafood, and pasta dishes, plus a vast wine selection. Chris? So, okay. Say that again slowly. It's a sophisticated... What? It's a sophisticated setting for upscale Italian meats, seafood, and pasta dishes, plus a vast wine selection. Okay, so... And I've been there. You've been there. This is the place... So, I'm, I'm at a slight disadvantage, but this is the place you... No, it doesn't even matter. In fact, I think it's way worse for that I've been there. But you talked about this place I'll tell you right Bill, now, right? Everything is obscenely expensive. Okay. <laughs> That's, I, mean, I just want a slightly fair, fair a, fight I, here. I didn't realize it's a Santa Monica institution. Uh, I was brought there, and it's the restaurant that you'd want to go when someone else pays. Um, it's fantastic. It really is fantastic. And I was like, oh, man, there's this restaurant called Capo. And I was like, yeah, dumbass. Mm-hmm. I go there all the time. Mm-hmm. It's so expensive that it prevents just about most people the opportunity to eat there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's the context. Santa Monica, generally speaking, Delicious is, is home to this. Like For people who are not living in L.A., Santa Monica, this is the hood, west side, by the beach, everything's more pricey. Generally speaking, yes. Okay. So, and uh, yeah, Chris. I think I'm at a disadvantage because I, I it's just it, everything's are so expensive that like it's fucking me up right now. Let me ask you this: just and one it's more an awesome restaurant. I want to go there, and next time someone wants to pay for it, I'm going. What do the chairs look like in the dining room? What are we talking about? Ooh, I mean, just give got, me a sense. I think they have it's like got a lot of tchotchkes in there, and I oh, love tchotchkes. it because it doesn't. It seems like the most New York City restaurant I've been to. Okay. More than Dantana's, actually. But are we talking hip, Old small, school. little thin chairs or big, beefy, leather, <laughs> no. tiny chairs? No, no, no. It's casual. Nice yeah. Okay. Casual. casual. But, but tchotchke is everywhere. Yeah. It's, it, and it doesn't, it's mix and match. Not shabby chic, but it doesn't make any The restaurant doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, okay. This is helpful because I was think, I was envisioning just like a sterile... No, upscale. full of life. Okay, okay. And regulars. Okay, like people that eat every meal there. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Yeah. All right, give us some items. All right, here we go. From Capo. Okay. What, what is the menu section called? We'll start with dessert, actually. With okay. Dolce. With Dolce? Oh, with shit. Dolce. That changes my price right. immediately. Once you start using <laughs> Italian words, there's the, there's a premium. Okay, sure. A chocolate souffle. A souffle. I'll check everyone, everyone gets a souffle. Chocolate souffle. Is there any description? No. There are no descriptions. Right. Was there even a? They tell you like I'm pretty sure it's like you gotta order it order like an hour in advance yeah. or whatever. It's not a serves two thing. It's just a chocolate souffle. We gotta be honest with the numbers instead of writing it out. I, I'm gonna tell you right now. I think it is. I think I should go first. You have go, a closer go. idea. I'm gonna say forty eight dollars. Seventy eight dollars. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's twenty eight dollars, guys. Fucking. <laughs> 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 My first See, I'm telling you, it's fucking me up because I've been there. You're going to totally first, overshoot it. Well, when you said that, my first, I was like, shit, I should have stuck with my gut, which was 65. <laughs> <laughs> but like, here's the thing. I'm really, I cannot tell you how much I love this restaurant. I really, really do. And I can't wait to go there. I'm, I promise Grace I'm going to take this. This is the kind of restaurant Grace is going to love. Well, you know what just happened? You know what literally just happened was in that interaction, as we were describing, I was like, Oh man, I can't afford. I can't go to this place. But then when he said twenty eight dollars, like, huh, that's a deal. <laughs> Which is why I think that's a de- they're deking you right there because there's nothing, go. there's no way. And the reason I overshot it, just FYI, why it's a problem for me that I've been there once. That doesn't seem crazy when you look at everything else, correct? Right. 
<laughs> Can we go? Do you have okay? Keep going, but I want to do like cheapest. Like restaurant I want to get like cheapest yeah. wine by the glass and stuff like that too. Oh, cheapest wine by the glass. Yeah. Oh, that's you got to give me some time for that. That's All right, just do do what you yeah. got. But I want to do that too. Okay. So, okay, let's start with. Oh, a this is a good game. Prosciutto de Melota. What's that? Okay, it's a it's like cured meat. I think it's just just a one order of cured meat. Prosciutto? Yeah, prosciutto in the starter starter section or whatever. Uh, uh, Premi jamon jamon de bolota. Jamon yeah. de bolota. Oh, I'm gonna go. This is this is, this is crazy. Hundred and eight dollars. Jamon de bolota. It's not a supplement on the menu. It's just on the normal it's menu. It's not. It doesn't, it, does, it doesn't. It doesn't have its own little box around it. Nope. <laughs> I'm gonna say thirty-seven. Dave, you got it. It's 84 bucks. What the <laughs> fuck? I told you. I told you this restaurant is insane. <laughs> That's why I want to overshadow on souffle. I literally thought. Can I see? I want to see a picture of it. No, no, no. After, okay, after. Okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> or we can just $84. go. $84. We can just go, go and see it in person. Just go and see it in person. Oh, man. That's some fucking, that's some nice ham. Okay. <laughs> some nice ham. All right. We'll go under antipasti. All right. Heirloom vegetable burrata. Heirloom vegetable burrata. Yeah. Antipasti. Antipasti. How many, how many sections of the menu are there? Uh, there's a few. Yeah, there's like seven. Fuck. The only one I know I have an advantage over you is the, the secundi. Because mm. I, I like... You I remember like, the price. I remember on everything these. on that. For the, no, no, I remember the high and the low. Okay. This is... This I have no idea. Bur- no. Veg- heirloom vegetable burrata. Well, heirloom is going to add 20%. Sixty-seven percent, fifty-two. I'm going sixty-eight. Oh, that's close. Uh, b- between who won it, but uh, it's Chris. Uh, it's actually forty-one. So, what you that? Look at that. Another deal. <laughs> yeah, look at these. Just, just bargains all over the place. Wait, forty-one. You don't need have this and tomatoes. Jesus. Jimmy, Jimmy, women eat crickets, dude. It's good. And it's like, this place is packed. No. And busy? I've only been there once. They don't have to be busy. People spend so much money there. I don't know. I've only been there once. And I'm really genuinely, it's the restaurant I want to go back to the most. Hmm. I do. But I don't want to pay for it. God, that's crazy. Though. It's like, it's, it makes you happy, though. Oh, it's fucking great. People love this restaurant. It's I so didn't know it's an institution. I mean, yeah. so far, nothing you've said is like, I mean, everything is all very right, expensive, going, but I want to eat all of it. All right. We'll go to chicken. So, pollo e anatto. My Italian doesn't work. No, okay. no, come on. Do Everything's it. No, in no. Italian. You do it with confidence. Boyo e anatro? I don't know. Don't do it with confidence. Yeah, I'm trying my best. <laughs> what is a natro? I don't know. I don't know what this is either, but we're going to go with it. Uh, Tecumseh pollo pomodoro. Tecumseh? Comes a boil pomodoro. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't know it's whole chicken or not. It's just a a chicken chicken parm. Chicken parm? Ooh. $98. Just under $100. Dave, $99, $98, $99. $107. Dave, you're overshooting it, but not as much as Chris. We are at, let me pull that back up. 69. <laughs> so, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Are, are, <laughs> are, are these prices accurate, like, accurate today? Uh, that's a good question. I'm just looking up the menu on the website. So that's mm. what I see. I don't but, know. Uh, I don't know. It Wait, could be more. 68. I just want to do a little bit of back. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to orient myself now. So yeah. 
Prosciutto was 41. Right. Last time, listen, last time I was there, well, the only time I was there, I believe the cheapest meat dish was $98. Okay. Which is why I'm like, I don't know if these prices are actually accurate. What did you just say the chicken was? Uh, $69. $69. I think it's $98. I really do. My belly is rumbling. $69. All right. Dessert 28. Okay, I'm oriented. But uh, you know what? Honestly, for chicken parms and a nice restaurant, that seems like market right it's now. It's not crazy. Yeah, it does. It does. Context. When you went, did you do sharesies or did you, like, did you share? Was it family style or was it more individual portions Both. type stuff? Okay. Both. Everything comes a la carte for the most part. Okay. All right. Uh, let's do steak. Uh, let's do the... Listen, guys, if we're going to order the steak, we need to we need to divvy up the, the bill accordingly <laughs> here, guys, because I don't think I'm going to eat any of the steak. <laughs> It's just a simple prime, simple prime filet. So uh, Creekstone Farm prime filet bone-in. Bone-in filet. No, I'm oriented now. Don't I, you guys want to know how big it is? How big is it? It's not telling me, so. <laughs> Somebody's rallying. All right, here's here's my logic. Go ahead, you're up. I'm going to stick to the eight. No, no, I think I'm, I'm up. I think I'm up. You're he, up. he did first. Go. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say, so dessert was 28, chicken entree was 69. This is the filet steak. I'm going to say it's between two and two and a half times the price of the chicken. So I'm going to say 135. 118. Oh, it's Chris by a nose. <gasps> 128. Yeah. Oh, damn. That's, <laughs> an, expensive that's filet, an expensive filet, dude. dude. But I'm dialed in on this price. You're dialing in. I was in. like, damn, he's dealing it. <laughs> <laughs> Hit. <laughs> <laughs> we should say this is culinary battleship. Yeah. Fuck Prefi. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, let's do a pasta dish because they're they're kind of priced similarly. All right. So all right, just a simple corn ravioli with tartufo. With tartufo? With is that tartufo. a supplement? Do they have a supplement? Nope. It's part of the dish. I had this. It's good. It's agnoloti too, right? Uh, I believe it's agnoloti. Okay. Or plini. So I hungry. hate it when people are like, well, that's so not Agnoloti, it's a plini. So shut the fuck up. I love telling Stop. the audience, shut the fuck up. <laughs> They're like, we're not saying it. <laughs> Corn, Agnoloti, or ravioli with tartufo. Yeah. I'm going to change up the eights. No, I'm going to stick to the eights. $78. No, 88. 88. I was sticking with 88. <laughs> You can see I have a gambling problem. <laughs> Everything I'm doing is eight. Yeah, there's a lot of eights in here. 69 for chicken. This is a corn ravioli with truffle. There was a supplement. When I was there, it was a white truffle. It was like $400. For, for Jesus for some, it was crazy. 200 300 400 whatever. It was a lot. Someone else got it that paid for it, so I was happy. How many? How many? How big is the pasta? How many pasta? It's a like normal there? pasta. Okay. How many pasta dishes are on the menu? Uh, there are five. I think they're in the sixty to high eighty dollar range. All of them. I think that that sounds about right, but I'm gonna go. You said eighty eight. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be too close to you. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna say seventy four. Chris, you win again, but you guys both overshot it. Forty nine dollars. <laughs> Whoa, it's a deal. Damn, dude. It's a Whoa. deal for tartufo. For tartufo. <laughs> for tartufo. <laughs> for tartufo. Wow. Yeah. Wait, what is What's it? Do forty eight. Forty nine. I don't think these prices are accurate. Forty nine. We gotta get to the bottom of this pricing. Wait, so what is the what's the top pricing for a pasta? It's that. That's the top pricing. I don't for believe a pasta? this is true. Yeah. That's surprising. Chicken dish was sixty yeah. sixty nine. Tartufo pasta forty eight is surprising. I mean if we're playing if we're playing capo arbitrage 
I say, you go in there, you sit at the bar, you get a nice tartufo pasta, <laughs> you pre-order the souffle, <laughs> and you share the burrata. Do we want to go to the next what's restaurant? What's the highest, what's the, that's the most expensive pasta? Uh, that is the most expensive pasta. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And let's I, I've like turned this fucking restaurant into John Bunyan. <laughs> Paul, Paul, Paul. I was I was worried he was going to do that. Actually, that he he would remember just being like these numbers just don't make. But sense. I actually I told you that's why it's a not a good thing that yeah. I was there. No, but I based I I thought based on the other prices that that corn ravioli would be higher though. Even not knowing I that is regardless still on the higher end for most pasta places in America. You think so? Forty eight for the highest price pasta item on the menu. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, like if you go to so. Pomodoro, it can be like thirty two, thirty four bucks. Mm. I think right now, high end. Hmm. Pasta hasn't, I think, cracked the fifty dollar thing, and it's not real tartufo. It's probably summer truffles. I mean, I think that summer truffle bullshit. Well, I mean, if you went to Carbone, it'd be more. I don't know. I haven't been to Carbone in a while. Hmm. All right, we'll do one more for the for the highest thing on the menu. Okay, this is a bistecca fiorentina for two. Oh, for two. Yeah, for two. Remind me, the fillet price was one hundred and twenty eight. That is correct. Mm. Is it a bisteca, Florentina? Yeah, yeah. For two. Oh, this is, I'm just going to tell you right now, 278. I was going to say 275. Um, oh, I might be, not 270, not 300. It's 278. I'll say 288. 288. It's definitely a crack the 200 for sure. Yeah, it's no crack question. The, crack the 200. For, I just, it's for two. I could almost see it at 350, too. But I think for it's two? A, yeah, maybe. Well, clearly it's not without reaction. So I'm going to 288. 240. Chris, you're the winner again. You guys both overshot it again. 205. We go to the bar. We get a <laughs> for two. We get some burrata. We get a souffle. We're out. I mean, I'm going to say that's actually market price right now in most places. I never get the bestick of Fiorentina. That's a big-ass slab of meat for I'm two people. You, like, uh, listen, again, I'm... I'm happy. I love this restaurant. I just, I think I've been so in, scarred almost by the shock of things that everything is bigger than it actually seems. But I, I'm telling you, like, I think I'm sort of being gaslit by these online menus. I don't think it's true. I think this I remember Fiorentino being higher than that. Yeah. yeah. Either way, filet, 128. Bisteca for two, 208. Deal. Wow. This guy. I mean, yeah. Big baller over here. I mean, I might go there every day. That McSweeney's money. I might take. I might, I might take my. Paying this guy. I might take my McSweeney's helicopter to the west side and get this for lunch today. Wow, this fucking guy bought Bitcoin when it was a dollar. Yeah. The first place I heard about Bitcoin was I was working Chris at McSweeney's. Satoshi Yig. I was, I, was at, I was at McSweeney's when people were like, "It's this Bitcoin thing's like eight bucks," and I was like, "I don't have that." <laughs> Okay, Joe Stone Crabs. All right, in Miami, Miami Beach, Florida. Classic restaurant. One okay. of the most iconic restaurants in America. This one, uh, the menu actually says effective uh, 12, 14, 22. What is the, so what is the Google reason. description of this place? For those who have no idea. Oh. It's where you get Joe Stone Crabs. It's where you get Stone Crabs during the winter. It's closed in the summertime. It's brilliant. And it's busy, one of the highest grossing restaurants in the country. Super busy, bustling, casual setting. Everyone goes there. It is the restaurant everyone goes to when they visit. I'm going to try to predict the Google description. Sure. Classic buzzy spot for fresh seafood and steaks. Uh, not quite. Cavernous. Bustling <laughs> space. 
hilarious space. <laughs> Open October to May and drawing crowds for crab, key lime pie, and more. Well, that's pretty descriptive, Google. Yeah. Out, Google. It's been years since I've been. Ten years at least. Oh, should be good. All right, so this menu does look accurate. I, I'll say that. So, um, okay. They also, for some reason, are not listing weights, which is kind of weird, but okay. Never ask. All right. Let's start with the king crab legs then. Seafood and fish. Who gets king uh, crab legs there? I'm going to go with MP. <laughs> the price. No, they have numbers on them. So. Okay, king, king crab legs under what section? Just It is under the Joe Stone Crabs. Like, it's just seafood and fish. Okay, section. and there's no like amount or weight or they're not telling you how much this is. No. I have no fucking idea. $82. $150. Bucks. $109.95. So, Chris... Takes that one. What do you think you get for the one hundred nine ninety five? One, two. Yeah, I mean, like probably like six legs in the body. Jesus, I don't know about don't six know. legs. I don't, know. Many, <laughs> I don't even know how many legs the fuck this king crab has. <laughs> we never served that shit at Momofuku. I don't know, sixty legs. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you eating king crab? Okay, uh, stone crab bisque soups and salads. Eighteen bucks. That's a good guess. That's a good price. 18. 18. Oh, well, you know what? 1795 because they did the 95. They do the 95. This is the 95 kind of restaurant. Ooh, that changes a yeah. lot for me. 1795 for me. Because they're, they're, they're still trying to do a little price illusion. 2395. 1295. Oh, shit. <laughs> for a couple of bowls. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't say. This is where we get. Um, all right. <laughs> get expensive. This is where we get expensive. This is where we get kind of wild. All right. Side dishes for the table. Asparagus. Hash browns. Oh, their hash browns here are delicious. Asparagus. Ooh. The reason why side orders are usually more expensive is a la carte is that's where you can just like mint money on the guest, especially steakhouses that do a la carte. It's just, it's David Copperfield shit. So asparagus, I'm going to say $32.95. Do they all have 95 cents? <laughs> oh, it's, it sure seems to, yeah. All right. Stone crab bisque twelve ninety five side order is going to be thirty percent more. Uh, Seventeen ninety five. It is crazy how you just dial in these numbers, but uh, fourteen ninety five and pretty close. It's going to be more off. <laughs> you guys are getting a glimpse of why I was a C plus student. <laughs> It's, it's like he just pulls like random percentages. Yeah, out of his head. Like, he's like, like what he said thirty percent more. I was like, well, I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, so why not the hash browns? Let's go with the hash browns. A large order. It's for the table, so I'm assuming it's like family size ish portions. Delicious. Lots of clarified butter. Very good. I also feel like side orders tend to be within the same ish range. So I'm gonna go. But it's the most popular thing. It's like everybody Every gets it. Like, oh, it's a very famous order. All right. 22 bucks. I am going to go. It has to be to the point where people know that it's expensive, and it's expensive because they've heard that the hash browns are good. It's so reputational upcharge. Yeah, so it's got to be on the threshold of like, ooh, that's steep. But, but you have to get I gotta it. Get yeah, it. you're right. You know, it's like, yeah, that's, and the restaurant knows it, right? And then I, ah, so what, so I got to put, I got to channel myself as a guest eating. I'm like, got to, you know, Chris, Chris says, I got to get it. Or, or is it going to be a little reverse psychology where it's like, oh, the thing you have to get no, is like no, kind no, of affordable. No, 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 I don't think so. Hmm. Uh, that's what I think. I think anything over $25 
is too much. Anything close to 30 bucks that's push the, oh, that pushes over that edge. It's got to be just tw- you know, 24.95. <laughs> He's feeling it. He's defining it. it. Remember, we're talking about little He's fucking potatoes right now. He's looking up to get to like, 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 like Queen's Gambit. I'm looking at the chest. <laughs> He's watching He's watching these yeah. lights turn into hash browns. I'm on quaaludes too right now. Um, it can't be 24.95 because people will be like, well, that's too expensive. Like 25 bucks. And then 23.95. Twenty-three ninety-five. It is. <laughs> to lose my $2. Chris, you overshot it too. $14.95. Wow. <laughs> I'm so bad at this game. Wait. Oh, wow. So it's so the same price game. as asparagus. Asparagus, yeah. I'm so, I should bad. S- I'm so bad at this game. <laughs> I did this to screw with you guys, but yeah. But what's interesting is I feel like some of these are, are, when you're saying them, are you trying to guess? Are you also like, would that be worth it to me? No, I'm not, not at all. I'm actually trying to nail it. <laughs> Because fourteen ninety five. Jerome Powell's in my fucking head. <laughs> He's living rent free in my fucking head. <laughs> oh, he's running amok here. He's running amok. All right, let's do a bone in ribeye. Bone in ribeye. They do stipulate a size, so twenty ounces. Twenty ounce bone in ribeye. I'm going one 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 twenty eight ninety five. Twenty eight one twenty eight ninety five. Yeah. Okay. This is the first one. We, this is the first uh, entree thing we've done, right? Uh, no, the king crab legs. Oh, guess, yeah. what was that? That was one hundred nine ninety five. Oh fuck! I almost went way low on this one. Um, this beautiful mind shit's coming out. All you know, I'm imagining like fucking trigonometry and triangles. No, I'm I'm failing. I'm failing to just think right now. Like the most basic question is. Are king crab legs more expensive than a bone and ribeye? And I'm failing to to deduce whether <laughs> which one it is. I actually don't have any idea. Uh, ninety-eight ninety-five. Chris, you win again. It's eighty-nine ninety-five. I've only won one. <laughs> In like twenty of these, I've only won one. You're jo- you're Paul Bunyaning. I'm like a baseball average right now. <laughs> I spent a lot of time worrying about how much things cost on a menu. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're on the same boat, Chris. I'm just like, it's doable. I'm legitimately trying. Not like Recipe Club. <laughs> <laughs> but this year on Recipe Club, I'm really going to fucking try. <laughs> All right. How about add a lobster tail? Six ounces. Ooh, I, like this. I love Ooh, this. this. It's frozen lobster tail. Definitely not warm water lobster tail. Definitely not warm water lobster tail. For whatever reason, I've always found warm water lobster tail more expensive than the their northern cousins with claws. So it's not. <laughs> They're definitely not getting it fresh. It's a frozen lobster tail. It could theoretically be warm water from Australia hmm. because Australian lobster tails are fucking... It's important to know this, but I'm thinking no. <laughs> They're not saying shit. No. I'm thinking it's from Australia. I don't think it's a northern, because that could be expensive. So you think we're talking spiny we're talking, or, First of all, I'm putting my fucking C-plus Sherlock Holmes hat on, <laughs> okay, <laughs> of really poor deduction, okay? I just need a fucking pipe. <laughs> <laughs> they get stone crabs fresh. That is their goal. That is what they do. It is their cocaine, pure cut. That's what they sell nonstop. And I dare say even overrated stone crabs. I don't like stone crabs that much because mm. the shell, whatever. That's a whole other conversation. So that's their bread and butter. 
they're doing lobsters because of the seafood thing and to upsell. I don't think that they're holding stone crab, the lobsters fresh in the tank, number one. I'm, this is an assumption. With no, no evidence, this is me just <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, throwing mm-hmm. shit out there. Stone crabs are not live. They're already, because they, they take them off, they harvest them, and they put them back in the water to regrow. So, they're, that's on, so they don't have any live tanks. I don't think mm-hmm. Joe Stone has any live tanks. Also, because they're closed three, you know, five months of the year, mm-hmm. they can't have live tanks because who's going to fucking take care of that shit? Um, frozen lobster tails from the north will be too small. Mm-hmm. And it's a lobster tail. They're not doing claws. Just a tail supplement. I would theorize that these lobster tails are pretty big. They're probably two, one and a half to two pounds of lobster itself. Two pounds of lobster big tail I think supplement. I think they're big. For, no, they're big. I'm thinking they're big. They, mm. So to interject real quick, they do stay at six ounces. So it's small. No, that's small. not small. That's, that's pretty big. He said two pounds. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> what monster has a two pound tail, On a one pound, on a, I know this. On a one pound lobster, you average around three to four ounces of meat. Four ounces if you extract every fucking thing from the legs. Okay. So this is probably a two to two and a half pound lobster. So now it could be a northern kind of lobster with claws. But I'm going to stick with my poorly deduced assumption. <laughs> Wait, why? You did all that. You did yeah. all that work, and then you said, "But I'm just triangles and equations floating." Because I'm channeling my George Costanza. He's like, "I've done all this math, but I'm just gonna guess the answer." And it is. People are really getting an insight of why I was such a bad student. Mr. Multiple choice questions uh, impossible for me. Oh my god! <laughs> I, all right, I'm going with a lobster, uh, Australian lobster tail. I think before you the price, Australia, hmm. probably from the waters of Tasmania. I'm gonna say forty nine ninety five. Fuck, that was exactly what I was gonna say. Uh, um, frozen, for sure. Which can also still be delicious. Don't overthink frozen lobster tails can't be delicious. In fact, I I almost prefer frozen lobster tails. Hmm. Six ounce lobster, eighty eight dollar steak, hundred nine dollar king crab leg. They wouldn't offer this. This is like you got to make your steak into a surf and turf. You've already dropped $90 on the steak. How much more are you going to drop to turn it into a surf and turf? I really enjoy this game so much. <laughs> this game is great. It's fun. $59.95. 59 Guys, $29.95. Oh, right? my God. I'm going to go there and just get <laughs> lobster tail supplements. <laughs> that's a fucking deal. That's crazy. Yeah, give me two. Yeah, that's... No, can I, do I have to... Uh, I'm asking my server this. Can I get the supplement without getting the main? <laughs> just order extra two supplements? Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Oh, it's impressive. Yeah. Damn. Good deal. They must sell the shit out of that. I'm so bad at this game. You got that one. Um, no. But by, by overshooting by $20. <laughs> <laughs> overshooting by 20 bucks. Yeah, by like 80% God. overshoot. It's true. How uh, much is key lime pie? The and we'll key get out of here. Well, I want to know, yeah, key lime pie, but I want to know how much stone crab, like what are the, oh, what yeah. is the format of stone crab legs? Okay, so the f- stone crabs, um, it's, I guess the claws are chilled, cracked, and served with mustard sauce. No, 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 the price. What's the extra large jumbo? The jumbo? I mean, I'm going to say extra large, and I think you get like by the pound. Okay, so it's a jumbo. I don't know. They don't say how many pounds, so right. we'll go jumbo. But it's an order of them. Yeah, order yeah. of them. And you think you get about a pound? I think it's 135 bucks. For like about, a, you the would jumbo. think like about a pound a plate, of jumbo, a plate. a plate of them? 
with the mustard sauce. They have really good mustard sauce. 135.95. I think the smaller ones will probably go 40 to 50 bucks. I think the medium-sized claws, 60 to 70 bucks. The large are in the 80 to 90. So the super jumbos are in the 130, 120, 135 range. I'm only 135.95. No, no, no seafood pun intended. I think the king crab legs are a red herring. To make you feel that the the stone crabs are affordable, yeah, small, you're smart. I think it's going to be ninety nine ninety five. Dave, I won. won. Holy shit, man! You were banging like just crushing balls down the middle. It was one thirty four ninety five for the jumbo. I need to, I need to go over how fucking crazy this was. It was like Rain Man. Okay, medium forty nine ninety five. Whoa, large eighty four ninety five. And the select of one above the medium is fifty nine ninety five. He was hitting. Oh, like, I didn't know there were. So fastball. Jumbo is the the biggest one. Okay, Jumbo's okay, the biggest okay. one. It was one thirty four ninety five. Fuck, wow. dude. I still lost. <laughs> How much is key lime pie? How much is, is oh, yeah. by the slice or by the whole pie? I believe it's just a slice. I think they're key lime pie. Again, we've already made this very clear on this podcast on a recipe club that key lime pie is the greatest pie. America's ever produced and should, like, again, if we're challenging baseball fucking food, this is the Best same pie. vein. Let's get the fucking rid of gourd pie and replace it with key lime pie. Best pie in the world. Real Americana. Modern Americana. And I'm going to say key lime pie that they definitely add food coloring green, which makes it better. I want it to almost look like it should be um, St. Patrick's Day green. Uh-huh. More neon nuclear green, the better to me. But it's not. It's more of like a yellow, beige, yellow. For a slice? We're talking slice, probably. Slice, yeah. Okay. Twelve ninety-five. It's um, not nuclear green. That's what I'm meaning to say. It's I don't like I like it all. Less than a side of a. A nuclear green one that you might get at a diner is like six ninety-five. Seventeen you ninety-five. Know, you nailed it on the dot. Twelve ninety-five. Whoa! <laughs> 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 Holy shit! Feeling good. <laughs> is he looking at the menu? That's what I want. Is somebody check his iPad. He's just drilling. He was like, $12.95. You all so the sizes? Deal on the pie. Deal on the hash browns. They, f- they, they fuck you on the stone crab. They fuck you on the stone Nice work on that. Nice work on the, on the jumbo stone right. crab. Well, you know, we had a couple more restaurants, but we need to get uh, along with this interview uh, with Marguerite. And uh, Melissa, and we'll get to that in a second. We'll take a break, and you'll hear our talk with Marguerite and Melissa from City Capital. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Recently... Even though we closed this a couple weeks ago, Momofuku CPG, known as Momofuku Orchard, led by Marguerite Mariscal, who's been on this podcast uh, a handful of times. Uh, and she's recently, so what is it? It was in Fortune. I saw that. Or Forbes. What was that last night? Fortune. I, I'm sorry. I didn't pay for the subscription, so I couldn't, re- <laughs> couldn't read it. All I knew is that it was there. Um, we've been growing this business. You've heard me talk about it a ton uh, over the past three years. Um, we have discount codes, et cetera. But it's clearly been a big growth enterprise for us. Um, and we were very, very 
cautious about bringing any new partners in because this is something that we wanted to grow slowly and methodically and to find somebody, even though capital is out there, we wanted to find the right partner to, to come on board. And I don't want this to just be like sponsored content, even though I guess I could technically do that uh, regardless. But I always want to get people on board that align with everything that we're doing and I can sort of explain what's happening, but also get some insights from somebody that I think is fabulous, wonderful, and a real thought leader in the business that can you know, illuminate some things that people may not know about, uh, food, manufacturing, et cetera. And uh, I think shed some light as to why we wanted to partner with City uh, Capital uh, as well. So here's here's why why this is interesting to me. I don't know, understand anything about capital investment, building a company. Don't tell Dave, my business partner, that I don't know any of these things. But I also, for somebody who who literally spends my entire life thinking about food, it has never really occurred to me until I've watched Momofuku being built, as I've watched Chili Crunch go from a thing that you know I tasted in, in jars that aren't the real packaging, tasted out of core containers, to a thing you could buy online, to a thing which I in, in grocery stores. And it occurred to me like I don't know how most of the products get there, how anything rises to the surface, how something goes from an idea that somebody had a a a dish, a sauce, a, a packaged good that somebody literally invented in their in their home kitchen or restaurant kitchen and the pathway to it making to a lot of people. And I feel like, you know, my first question for, for Marguerite, who is, who is deeply in the thick of it is, you know, <laughs> is that journey something you understood when you started doing Momo Goods? And like, where do you, what have been sort of the, the, learning points for you. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I can say confidently that I think we had very little idea of what we were doing when we started. Um, <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> it's been an evolution. We've gotten better. I, I think when we started, we just knew that this was a space that we wanted to be in. And I think Momofuku is also notoriously, uh, I think, not a restaurant group that has kind of consistently stamped out multiple restaurants. It's always been kind of a really creative exercise. And I think for us, you know, when Dave and I talked about how we wanted to grow, how could we scale um, for us, we really thought that like packaged food was the direction. I also think um, since Noodle Bar opened in 2004, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you guys talk about this on the podcast all the time, just like food knowledge has exploded and the number of, you know, the idea that someone understands the difference between Cantonese and Sichuan uh, food, um, I think is, is really gone national. However, the pantry and, and the quote unquote ethic aisle has not reflected that. It's like still pretty, pretty dated. So for us, instead of opening a ton of restaurants where, you know, that space has really uh, kind of grown over the past 20 years, we really thought the kind of grocery store was where there was the most uh, opportunity for innovation. So I think it was really just our task then to figure out how we could do that and how we could tackle it. Um, so uh, I know more than I did then, but we're definitely uh, still learning and we're excited to have City and, and Melissa and everyone on board to really take us to that next next place. We've talked to, we've tried to talk about venture um, and I know some of our audience is like, oh, I'm going to turn this off. I don't give a shit about capitalism, even though you're part of it. And without going too down the rabbit hole on this, you know, you meet a lot of people in the world of financing in terms of venture, in terms of people people that will help you grow. Um, 
and I think a lot of these individuals may get bad raps, um, and I think deservedly so. So uh, we were very, very intentional, and we met with a lot of people. Um, and the reason I wanted Melissa on board is because of who she is and her team that represents sort of like, I think, the philosophy of Melissa. Um, and I wanted to have her on board and sort of explain like how you got here and almost everything that you drink, consume uh, from the supermarket shelves or if you get from mail order, you know, how that all works. Because I'm learning that, that it's not as romantic sometimes as you think it to be. Um, and this world of investing isn't always what it seems to be as well. And I, 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 I don't say this lightly. I, I think I was always not always surprised. I was really surprised when talking to Melissa as to her, um, I just think she's a good person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think that comes across and I think that gets lost in a, in a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Melissa, uh, I'm excited to have you on, um, I know we're going to talk about you before at the top of this podcast, but um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself if people don't know? For already? sure, and I'm sure they don't, so I'm happy to educate. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a unique experience. I grew up in super large food and beverage manufacturing. Um, my dad built the largest privately held juice manufacturing businesses in North America. Uh, also, you know, Whoa. virtually came from an immigrant family. Uh, and I think today would still say he unapologetically believes women belong in the kitchen and not in the boardroom. Not at all uh, who I am or what jives with me. But I did get a first job on a factory floor at 11 years old uh, and ended up really falling in love with state-of-the-art food manufacturing. It is highly intriguing when you see thousands of units of product come down a line all at once. Uh, and it's really invigorating to realize how these things get pumped out. Melissa, you 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 had a job on the factory floor when you were eleven. Yeah, yeah. don't tell anyone. My I mean, I'm, I'm looking at you. I don't. It doesn't. You don't look like somebody who grew up in the 1880s, though. But like, <laughs> what? Forty this year. Uh, and so, oh yeah, not not 400. <laughs> what did you do on the factory floor yeah, at 11? Str- strangely, almost been in food for 30 years. Uh, what was I doing at 11? I was packing boxes. Quite literally, at the end of a yogurt manufacturing line, taking yogurt cups off the line and putting them in a box. Okay, so like I fully—that's all you, you were say. eating ice cream. I was <laughs> eating eleven at your parents' ice cream store. <laughs> I was watching people work. Also, I fully understand why Dave likes. <laughs> You've been working in a factory since age eleven. I understand exactly what this is all about now. Got it's, it. Uh, it. It is definitely a unique and ironic experience, um, but it got me. Uh, frankly, it got me close to the food system. Uh, I think our food system is broken. I don't think we provide people with the best quality food, certainly not at affordable rates. Um, and and like I said, I fell in love with operating and what it meant to be a manufacturer. And so put all those things combined. Uh, I left our family business about 10 years ago and thought I would do anything but get involved in food. Uh, 90 days later, found myself invested in food, not, 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 not financially invested, but invested in what was happening in the new emerging food and beverage community, which is really where I would put Mama Fuku CPG now. Um, and, you know, really built uh, uh, on, I think, my operating skills, ultimately built an operating firm 
Uh, What does that what does that mean, Melissa, operating firm? Because maybe some of the audience understands, but I think it for the most part, people still have no idea how this whole food system works, particularly on the consumer product goods. Yeah, that's right. And so so let me first say everyone understands what consulting is, right? You have a skill set, you go and pay somebody for that knowledge, uh, that knowledge gets distributed to you for a cost. Uh, and then, you know, you, you basically incorporate that into your life, um, your professional life. I, I found that model to fail because when we were telling people what they needed to do inside their business, whether it was, please talk to manufacturer A, and I'll get into what, what your exact question was in a second, or please change warehouses or, uh, truck delivery services, right? People didn't know what that meant or how to actually do it. And so um, I formed a firm that was an execution firm full of operators who went into these businesses and did those tasks, actually took on the role of building these companies themselves. Um, And you're right, it is very complicated uh, in food because I think there's two first ways of production to answer your question, by the way. There's either building a facility, uh, which is easy to understand. You end up owning a factory uh, or you have to go to someone else who owns a factory and you have to ask them to make your product for you. That's called co-manufacturing. That's a hard equation, uh, and there's a lot of stuff built in there, particularly around your recipes, how you protect them, if that manufacturer is going to serve you the right way, make your product quality correct. But that's just one small sliver. Once you get the final product, right, uh, in in a what you would pick up in a grocery store, it doesn't just land at the grocery store. It has to go through a whole network of distribution to ultimately get to the grocery store. Uh, so now you have warehouses and logistics people, which are trucks that move the product back and forth. You have distributors that pick up products from warehouses and move it to certain retailers. All of those pieces have costs. They all have you know, different kind of mechanisms for liability and responsibility. It's a really complicated structure. It's, it's funny, as I was listening to you guys talk about what Marguerite knew in the beginning, most people that we invest in or talk to say, if I knew what it was to get involved in the food business to begin with, I probably wouldn't have done it. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than it seems to be to deliver awesome quality product to people. We're along that line. I, I'm speaking to people out there who are like, Oh my God, I make the greatest barbecue sauce in the world. Everyone's got to taste my barbecue sauce. Where does shit usually break down along that process? Is it like where, if I'm, if I'm a aspiring entrepreneur with a, with a dream in my pocket and a (laughs) sauce in my fridge, where's it going to break down for me? Typically. We talk to a lot of those people, by the way. Um, (laughs) Yeah, a lot of barbecue sauces out there, I know. (laughs) Um, Where it first breaks down, honestly, is uh, most people don't have the funds to be able to pay to move something out of their home kitchen or the next stage, which would be a commercial kitchen where they're doing the work themselves, but renting out space in a local kitchen uh, and moving it to whatever type of manufacturing that I just explained uh, that you choose. So that's the first issue is capital, right? Most people go to friends and family and get friends and family capital, a few thousand dollars, $50,000, $100,000, whatever it is, and try and make that transition. The problem is food's expensive. You have to buy raw materials, which are ingredients, right? You have to buy packaging. Um, And so all all of that stuff is a laid out cost uh, initially. The second place it fails most often, by the way, is in that manufacturing setup I just talked about. Uh, Either people suck at manufacturing, 
they try to build their own facility and they have no freaking business doing that. Uh, and they literally blow up their whole company because they don't know how to do that. Um, or they try and convince a manufacturer to make product for them. But you have to remember a manufacturer is in business for themselves too. So if you can't produce volume at first, which no small company generally can, um, what, what, what advantage do you have to that manufacturer other than being able to pay them? And if you don't have capital to pay them, what, what do you do? That, that, that's generally why people take years and years to get off the block. And City was in operations. What led you to be like, you know what? I love operations, but we should go to the other side. How some people might see even the dark side and just <laughs> go into the, invest, the world of investing as well. What led to that strategy? For exactly that reason. Uh, we sat back. We've built 404 companies. We've sat back. 404 <laughs> companies. Um, I can't even name 404 what would name, companies. How would you tiger parent that? <laughs> uh, well, literally, the number four is unlucky. Yes. Chinese, oh, so you know, you should be 888. <laughs> Yeah, 888 companies. Okay, got it. Um, Shame on you. Just the idea that you would stop in the four is good. I mean, you're just inviting bad luck. No, man, we're not stopping at the fours. Um, So so honestly, we, we sat back and we watched capital providers chase returns for companies. Like, like let's talk about a real life example, right? Hershey's bought a company, a jerky company called Crave. Uh, they bought that mm. business for, I don't know if it's public, so I'm not going to say it, but but some version of a multiple <laughs> of their revenue. Once that happened, and th- that's just one example, all of the all this money from all these other in- industries started paying attention and wanted to get in that race really quickly. So a bunch of money dumped into the space. And there wasn't a lot of um, knowledge, in my opinion. And so I was watching these investors as a service partner, right, as an operator, keep listening to the people who were controlling the checks, because why? They had the checks, they had the money, uh, and ultimately give advice to these companies and what they should be doing without any background. The companies would fail at it, or it would be the wrong direction. And then they would penalize the companies for it and come back and say, well, now we're going to devalue the business. We're going to move the valuation lower. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. And we watched that happen over and over and over again, where companies and founders were chasing the wrong thing because they were getting bad advice. And a handful of years ago, our firm was the in 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 investing you do something called diligence you review companies we were the diligence partner to 44 different firms investing in the space 44 even ones who claim that all they do all day long is invest in food and beverage they were calling us in the background having us diligence their companies for them and that really was the light bulb for me that if we were doing that and building, scaling, and de-risking businesses ourselves, we needed to be the right capital partner at the table, where we weren't penalizing companies for not making the right decision. I could give two shits, quite frankly, if a company makes the right decision. I just care that they don't make the wrong one twice. Um, you're ultimately going to have to make errors to learn what direction to go, because what I knew last year isn't relevant today in some ways. So I might be able to tell you what to do from last year's information, but it might not be right right now. Um, and so that that's okay. Uh, but but 
you know, I can't penalize you for that. And so the first thing we tell all of our businesses in the beginning of conversations with us is like, don't sell us on the perfect company. Because by the way, we're going to find out that you're not perfect with the level of diligence we do. We don't, we don't want it to be perfect. We just want it to be honest and make sure that we can help the business get to a place of scale and that what you're doing is something large enough to change and impact the industry. And if it is, and we can combine our team with that, and you like us and we like you, we might be the right capital partners for you. Marguerite, um, we took over this process of raising money for Orchard um, about nine nine months ago. Um, it's not something that we originally started. We had uh, let someone else on the team do it. And for reasons we, sh- we won't get into today, we're like, okay, me and you should start to do this. And I think along the way, you started to get a deeper understanding of the world that is CPG. And we spoke to a lot of different people. And what what was it that struck you when we met with Melissa? You know, we, we one of our one of a, a a board member advisor recommended us to City and Melissa and um you know, you you talk to anybody that says, "Hey, I vouch for this person." But what was what struck you? Yeah, I think you know, to Melissa's point on just like chasing capital, and I think uh, I I think we got some pushback on our projections for you know the next couple of years, and that um, from other firms that they weren't high enough, that like we weren't like juicing it, we weren't you know spending more on marketing, we weren't doing all of these things, which. I think. What do you mean by like, juicing? What's juicing? <laughs> Steroids? <laughs> juicing, hmm. juicing to me would be like, um, you know, you're spending, you're, you're unprofitable uh, in direct to consumer where you're spending so much on marketing that you're getting that top line dollar, but you're not actually, you know, contributing to the bottom line. Or, you know, it's really cool to say you're in like 10,000 doors, but if you're not performing well in them, it doesn't really matter. So it's like prioritizing kind of like top line sexy numbers, but not prioritizing, uh, like what actually is like a healthy business with the hopes of, yeah, it's you like know, Instagram versus yeah, real yeah, life, yeah. right? Like, this is what we're talking about. But what you're talking about right now is exactly the reason why we hate most of what's happening in the investing community is because they put the pressure on you to get to unrealistic expectations without understanding what it does to the actual fundamentals of the business. And then they come back and say, you just blew through too much cash. And so now you need to stop performing, stop spending the way you're spending, or you need to take money in on predatory terms uh, in order to keep it going. And they basically are penalizing you for chasing a strategy that they told you you have to perform at in order to get them interested. Why are they providing the strategy then? No, sorry, Melissa. Why why are these firms that are you know pushing their investments in these companies to grow at a ridiculous rate that they can't? actually sustain in a healthy way, why are they doing that? Are they trying to get out at the expense of the founders and the people working at this company? Like, what, what is the reason? I, I don't know that I can provide just one answer because it depends on the firm and the life cycle they're in. Every firm that raises outside capital has a window of time to exit, right? So if you are a brand new firm putting capital to work, you have a much longer horizon that you can let that business develop in without being worried about having an exit. 
If you're a later, you know, many years into your certain fund, and this is a last investment in that fund, you have a very short window of time to get performance and you'll push them, you know, to, to, to a degree to perform faster. But I think actually the fundamental failure started before that, which is when the conglomerates were buying businesses for top line revenue and, and conglomerate Nestle, Kraft, Coca-Cola, et cetera. And not caring about the bottom line, not caring about is a business profitable or not. And so the race was to get the revenue as big as possible in order to attract, you know, basically a bidding war in the company from multiple conglomerates. Conglomerates went through that cycle over the last decade. They acquired tons of these businesses. Many of them were successfully integrated, many of them failed in integration. Um, why? Because some of them might have had great top line revenue, but as Marguerite just called up, maybe the consumers weren't real. You were constantly spending to buy them and they weren't there returning uh, to buy product again, right? You only care about your consumer if they come to you the first time and then they keep coming back. Uh, that's really you know, a consumer that you care about supporting. And so all of a sudden the industry changed its perspective in the last year and a half, which was now we care that your top line revenue growth is supported by building a healthy business in the bottom line. That's now changed investors' perspective or is starting to change investors' perspective. The problem is there are many investors still stuck in that other model who are saying, wait a minute, you're giving me projections where you're not 3Xing your top line revenue in the next three years. I don't want to talk to you. And us as operators say, we're cool if you don't three extra top line revenue in the next three years, but we have to see that the bottom line starts increasing. We have to see we're building a healthy business. Once we build a healthy business, we can scale in perpetuity, right? There's no, no, no issue to that. The challenge is building in tandem when you have a business like Mama Fuku, frankly, that just has the ability to catapult and making sure that as it's catapulting, it's making the right small steps in the direction to make sure that the, the, the foundation of the business is secure. Why? Because then you can control the destiny of your company. Well, I'm, I'm so glad I asked you that because that was <laughs> so much more informative. I, I, I had no idea. So is, is, is the idea of like an overnight success in CPG a myth then? Like you don't just suddenly become... Like the, the brands that we recognize that become national brands that aren't necessarily, you know, the Crafts the and Nestle's and, and whatever's, how long do those actually take to get to true Depends scale? on what you consider to be success, right? Uh, and how many tens of millions or hundreds of millions you're talking about or billions, right? Like, like the businesses you just referenced. I mean, those are sometimes hundreds of years old uh, and, and required multiple acquisitions across tons of product categories to get them to the size they have. If I asked you if Mama Fuku CPG was an overnight success, what would be the answer? The answer might be yes, but it took, what, 18 or 20 years to build the Mama Fuku brand before that. And so that's not an overnight success in that. But this particular business might be defined as that uh, if you're just looking at that sliver. To be honest with you, three years ago, I would have told you you couldn't make an overnight success. Uh, when the direct-to-consumer market really hit with COVID, there were some businesses out there that grew zero to $50 million in 12 months. Uh, and that that's Oof. significant. Oof. Marguerite, do you feel that it was overnight? And that's what you were trying to explain to potential investors or people 
you know, that we were talking to. What I would say is, is I truly, truly think like the, the magic of what we're trying to do is the 20 year history of the restaurant group. I think um, there's a lot of conversations around, you know, direct to consumer being dead, um, you know, post pandemic uh, changes to like uh, uh, privacy policies um, that, you know, make it harder to target customers. But I think the ones that continue to be successful and first order profitable, like we are, um, is really about that connection to a, like, you know, at a restaurant, it would be a guest in this, you know, instance, it's a customer. And I think that we've have 20 years, we didn't know everything we now know about CPG, but we have 20 years of building those kind of connections and building those kind of communities. And I think that, you know, being able to leverage that into what we do um, made it much, much quicker, right? Uh, once we started launching these products, but I don't think you could get there without the kind of like brand equity uh, and trust that we had, at least with our like initial crew. And then from there, obviously it's grown and grown, but I think that our approach at Mofuku has always been, you know, start with the true believers, start with the the core and continue to grow it. Um, and we've done that, done that here. Can I ask you, Marguerite, like what you just said right there is, is, uh, Something I was wondering about. Because, I mean, Margaret, you've been with Momofuku since, God. 11 years. 11 years, right? You have, I've, like, I've known you for that entire time. I always. Is it 11 years? 12. 12. Ah. <laughs> well, one thing I, you know, I, I love about Marguerite is that you got the business side of things. You got the operation side of things. But you also sort of, you also got the spirit of things too and i think that you relished as much in like the success of the restaurants and now the cpg as you did in like the subversive messaging of momofuku the, the like the, the the mission of momofuku at the same time what is exciting to you about building momo goods beyond the success of the company like what does it mean for momofuku to be now available in every grocery store across America or when it is like, what, what does that, what does that sort of say about what you guys have been building for 11, 12 years? Yeah. I mean, I th- two things. One, I would say today, I just uh, came from lunch at noodle bar uptown. Um, and I, I was talking uh, over lunch about like, I think it's really incredible to work at a company where you're genuinely excited to eat at the restaurant and you're genuinely excited to use mm. the products. And I think that, you know, for Dave and I, I mean, Dave is like maybe the number one savory salt consumer uh, uh, out there. And like the fact that these are things that we truly enjoy and we get to like bring into the world and we get to use them in addition to everyone else. Um, I think that's what keeps it like fun and exciting and, you know, that we can literally come up with something and then, you know, have that available at Whole Foods for us to, to purchase. So um, I think that's, that's really great. Um, and I think, you know, uh, and the other thing I would say is I think, Dave and I have been on a very long journey of who do we want to reach? Like, who is our audience? And I think that that started, you know, uh, I mean, the Sambar's menu used to say, like, if you're a vegetarian, like, sorry. Uh, And, you know, we had 12 seat restaurants. um, And so, and you look at where the company is now, the person I was eating with was, was kosher. And like, they had like a great meal at noodle bar. And that would have absolutely not been the case 10 years ago. So I think for us, it's like continuing to define, you know, where we meet people and how we interact with them. And and Dave has always said, you know, if someone knows us because of these products or someone knows us because of X, Y, or Z, we don't really care as long as everything aligns with the same message. Like if people, if most of America in a couple of years knows us as a, you know, because of chili crunch, like, great. 
I think it's really about everything just laddering up to that overall kind of like ethos and quality, um, you know, that we have as a company. And, and we don't really care whether, you know, they're experiencing us in their homes, at Noodle Bar, at Co., you know, at Madison Square Garden, like whatever it is, right? Um, I think it's 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 been a fun journey to kind of play in all of those spaces. I have to go back for one second and just add something here, which is we invested in 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 Marguerite just as much as we invested in Dave Mamafuku in the products. So so what you're calling out in terms of understanding the intricacies of blending the consumer experience at the restaurant level and bringing it forward to the mass market uh, and having that conviction is 100% of what we saw uh, behind putting dollars behind not just this business, but this leader. Mm-hmm. Can I ask Amen. Can I ask Melissa a little hippy-dippy question now too? <laughs> uh, you know, earlier, right at the beginning, you you said something that, that struck me and I think it might, some listeners might also be struck by this. You said the food system is broken, which is usually something I hear from like a a dirt covered far <laughs> vendor at the farmer's market trying to send, sell me a rutabaga. And I understand immediately why they're saying that to me. I get it. What do you, it's, I guess, and I'm not trying to be, you know, not to be offensive, but like it's, it's different to hear from somebody in your position to hear that same thing from somebody in CPG. So what do you think, what do you find broken about the food system? That the maybe the rutabaga guy also. <laughs> I think there's a variety of things. Um, so 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 the first thing is we have a bunch of stuff in this country that's approved that's not approved in other countries uh, by way of ingredients, supply, chemicals, etc. That's broken to me, uh, and I think we need to fix that. We're not fixing it in broad scale CPG. Uh, but there are businesses that we invest in who focus on much more of a clean label circumstance. Then I think there's a different layer broken, which is just getting quality food at affordable prices to the mass market. So one of the things that, you know, I'm kind of famous for saying, uh, at least in our own investor pitches, meaning when I'm going out to raise capital from people, to put in our funds is it's great that there's a $15 green juice market out there and that it services New York and LA. And like, we're happy to be a buyer in a bodega in New York city one day when we stop in, but we're not going to write a check to a company like that because it doesn't service anything in between New York and LA, right? People can't afford a $15 green juice on a lunch break. Um, And so how do we get, good quality food at affordable prices, for us, it means scale, right? How do you, uh, many things get lower with cost uh, when when they have increased scale. Then I think there's a third layer, which is American palate has been defined by fast food for the most part. Um, They don't understand what ethnic cuisine or background or tradition or culture uh, and where those flavor profiles and tastes come from. They're not exposed to it in their home, right? Or at their five o'clock dinner table with their family. They order Domino's. Um, And so I think we have a passion about providing people with opportunities to experience new things that are non-intimidating. And if it's intimidating, you're going to shy away from it because you're not going to know how to use it, right? This is why, 
you know, chili crunch does so well. It's so easy. You could put it on anything. You don't have to be a cook. You don't have to be a Michelin rated chef. You don't have to cook an elaborate, you know, five course meal. You can throw it on eggs. And by the way, if you burn your eggs and overcook them with too much heat, like say la vie, you're still putting it on and it tastes great. Right. And so I think, um, I think it's broken in a variety of ways. And I don't think we have one investment thesis that changes it all. I just think we are focused in enhancing the food experience across the board. That's interesting. I think the, I think the, the, What's funny is I think that the rutabaga guy and the person selling a green juice would all say the same thing in different versions, right? And like I, nobody would think that they're in the same boat about what's broken and, and can we get people what they need. Uh, <laughs> but you, I, I was just thinking about what she was saying too. Like it kind of speaks to something you talk about all the time. Like you think of the, the Momofuku CPG stuff as like a gateway in a lot of ways, right? To, to not just flavors, but like understanding. Yeah, it's something Marguerite and I talk about a lot, and you you mentioned a little bit about Marguerite's leadership, and a lot uh, uh, of growth has happened in, in in CPG. But I think a lot of it started in, in her understanding, and I've always said this: she's understood Momofuku way better than I ever did. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think one of the first sort of relationships we had was I was like, oh. I think she just articulated way better than I could have ever done it myself, and she was like, totally. the, like the, the chief translator of my like insanity, and I was like, wow, she just gets it. So a lot of that was what Momofuku is, and it's a conversation we just had a town hall yesterday with all of our uh, managers, and you know, it was like, what is it? And it's a moving target, right? We are building restaurants. We're 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 still building that customer experience. Is it what it used to be in 20, I mean, 2004, 2010? No. And mm-hmm. it would be, it, it would be weird if it was mm-hmm. and we're growing and we're maturing. But one of the things that has never changed is we opened up Momofuku in 2004 for the, one of the, for a few reasons. One of the main reasons was, can we change people's perceptions about what food could be? You know, uh, l- l- Underneath that was Asian food, even though I never said we're making Asian food. Two, the word foodie didn't exist back then. Mm. Could great food be done affordably? And I say affordably, of value, right? And done with integrity and care, good as best ingredients as possible. And I've always joked, and I've, I've seen this over the years, that Momofuku, are we the most hardcore? Are we trying to be the most authentic thing? Mm. No, we are this hodgepodge of a lot of things. We're, I always say, American. But we've been the introduction to many different cuisines, particularly Asian food, to many people in America. We joke about Bosam all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like the, one of the top restaurant uh, re- recipes ever made from New York Times. It's made all the time, for example. We were given liberties to actually reinterpret it because no one knew anything about it. Now, people now, Bosam has been an entry point for a lot of people in Korean cuisine. It wasn't just me, but it was a part of something. And I think we've done that with restaurants. We're going to continue to do that with restaurants. And that's going to change and grow. But as Melissa was speaking to, what works in New York and what works in L.A. doesn't work anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me, and we've had Safi Bacall talk about Pan Am Airways versus United. Like, you know what? Especially after the pandemic. I'm tired of trying to be fucking cool mm-hmm. to a select few people. To to affect change, you you gotta 
sort of be as populous as possible. And if you go through supermarket, supermarket aisles in between Los Angeles and LA, they don't look like Los Angeles and LA. I mean, for sure they don't look like Los Angeles where there really isn't even an ethnic aisle. Right. And we, I've seen what we've been able to be part of. Are we the only reason? Absolutely not. And that's why I'm super, super, super confident that we can like help facilitate that message for a lot of places that may be as, you know, culturally unsophisticated, even though literacy is higher than ever before, there's still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, Marguerite, is that without giving away any company secrets, like, is that, is that part of your, is that at the back of your head too? Just, we're going to give people an entry point. We're going to meet them halfway somewhere and, and sort of introduce them to things and then eventually, this could be Momofuku dried squid products. <laughs> like, I mean, are you like, is that interesting or exciting to you? The idea of let's all let's grow this together with the consumer. Like, the consumer is going to come along as they totally. as they understand and this I think better. I'm just like a, a a throwback, but like Dave, like with Nishi and Major Domo, I think it's a great example where like with Nishi, mm -hmm. it was like so esoteric to start that it was like you couldn't even like get in right and and I. <laughs> when we opened Major Domo, we had so many conversations around verbiage, right? And how do we make this, you know, as Dave said, it's a California restaurant. It's an American restaurant because only in America could all of these things converge. But how much are we going to say that versus have people come in, try it, experience it? And so we always talk about things like the stuffed peppers that, you know, you can bring towards it, whatever your experience is. You know, if you grew up, uh, eating Korean food, if you think it's a jalapeno popper, like we don't really care. Like you're going to discover that after you've had it. And so I think with the CPG products, um, it's the same thing where it's like, you know, we intentionally, as Dave said, it's it's not an authentic chili crisp, but it's not trying to be. Um, it has uh, the peppers uh, in it are all from Mexico um, and there's inspiration from salsa maca. And I think for us, it's really about how, how do you get someone through the door? Because you can't change perception. You can't change culture if you can't meet people where they are and bring them with you. And so I think that that with the, the home cooking products has been really important to us. And we talk about verbiage all the time on those as well of how do you get someone through the door? How do you get someone to put this in their cart? Because that's the only way that, that you can affect change, which is something that, you know, uh, we're, we're trying to do at scale with the, with these products. How, Melissa, how do you get, how do you, how does your team sort of manage that part? Like, I'm, I keep on thinking about musicians and like A&R people going out to shows and listening to bands and trying to find something interesting and new and, and, and catchy, you know, how much of your process of identifying partners and, and, and companies that you want to work with comes down to the numbers versus let me taste this thing and there's something there. Maybe the business people aren't there yet. Maybe they don't know how to run this thing. Maybe they don't know how to scale it, but I believe in the product. And how much of that is just you personally trusting your own taste? Or is there a, is there a job can, for me to just I, taste things? Can, can, I, can I sort of maybe rephrase that for you, Melissa, too? Um, how, how true is it that you're betting on the individual versus the product? Mm. So... One of the downsides of taking in capital from outside parties when you raise a fund is that you have expectations of performance. And so if I was investing purely my own capital, 
Picking an individual would probably be the number one most important thing. But the truth is our firm and any investment firm, private equity or venture capital, is responsible for returns. And so you have to be a fiduciary to that and make sure that the business can perform. It depends on, by the way, the check size you're writing and how much you're investing. The smaller the check size, generally the smaller the company. And totally fine that the business isn't there yet, isn't putting up certain numbers, doesn't have you know the full integrity of the business. That's a true venture investment. And I think most people in that category absolutely bet on the founder before they bet on anything else. Now in food, taste wins, right? End of the day, if something tastes great, probably to you, it likely tastes great to somebody else, that's a winner. If it tastes like crap to you, you better friggin' run the other way because the likelihood it tastes like crap to other people is really high. Um, as you move upstream and your checks get larger, the business fundamentals are a real thing. You absolutely have to believe that the business can take in that amount of capital uh, and have a reason to take in that amount of capital. So you have business performance as one factor, but I'll tell you, there are many good businesses we've walked away from because of shitty management teams and shitty founders. Uh, and so for us, you have to have all three. Great products, which by the way, I would define back to non-intimidating. We want products that everyone in this country can understand. I don't want to have to educate you why this is a product you want to have in your pantry. I want you to know it should already be coming in, right? Could it be a better quality one? Sure. Could it be a higher cost one? Sure. Could it be a premium one? Sure. But you already know how to use it, right? Because someone else has already done that educational work. So it better taste good. Uh, and it better, you know, you know it better be non-intimidating. The founders and the management team better be people that truly at the end of the day are people you want to be in bed with for the next handful of years. These investments, I can't stress enough, can take five years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years of time. If you decide to write a check behind somebody who you're already not aligned with, you got a problem because now you're inside their business and they got your money and you're totally uh, 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 misaligned, right? And then the third is the business fundamentals. And so it's our job to make sure the business fundamentals are there. And if they're not there in some ways, how can we help make them stronger so that those other two that might be really great have the ability to prosper? Last, last question for me for the whole group. <laughs> Has there ever been like a CPG product that you just in your personal life really enjoyed that didn't make it, that they stopped selling, <laughs> that you just wish, whatever, not knowing what happened with their business, not knowing why they they stopped selling it, but you're just like, damn it, <laughs> they stopped selling my favorite brand of X. Do you guys have any of those? Or Melissa, were there ones that you really believed in from a taste perspective that just didn't make it oh to- Oh God, you're putting me up the spot. I have the to think about this. Memory is my worst suit, man. <laughs> um, there was this like crazy spicy- <laughs> It, I'll, I'll just go first. In, in, when, I was, when I was in school in Berkeley, there was this like super inauthentic, incredibly spicy hummus that I would find at Berkeley Bowl all the time. And then it was never anywhere else. And I just, they stopped selling it. And I became, I was very, very sad for a very long time. That was mine. You should just buy some support Sabra. <laughs> just get, I just had to doctor it myself, I guess. This is not a CPG product, but I think Dave's going to back me on uh, Dunkin' Donuts discontinuing the veggie egg white flatbread. 
was really tragic for me. <laughs> Are you coming along on that? Um, I'm surprised that Marguerite went there. I don't know if that would be my answer, but I support it. I, you've definitely had this, I, I'm gonna, this said flatbread. Oh, I definitely have had it because when you're at an airport, that's the one thing you have to get because you can't get anything else. It's the best thing. You, know, you don't have to put salt on it. Um, I'm going to say something that you know. Uh, those potato skins by the Keebler elves. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. You know what oh I'm talking God. about, Melissa? <laughs> yeah. It it had the fake potato skin, mm-hmm. but it, you know it was just basically like they colored it, you know, dark brown. On the other side was that like, a, like f- a sour cream and onion or cheddar and bacon. Fuck, that was the fuck. That's and the a f- very sturdy, thick chip. That is the definition of you don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> I don't know why it's not why it's gone. Mine came back already, uh, so I guess this probably isn't a, a good a good a good one. But Dunkaroos were one that I thought needed to never leave the shelf. Uh, I didn't know they had left ever. They were amazing. And then they disappeared for like a decade and a half. Is it? It's like, (laughs) I know that I said that was my last question, but the Dunkers thing makes me think of this. When they discontinue a product like that, is it sort of like Jurassic Park where the DNA exists somewhere? We can recreate these eventually down the line. Millions of years from now, there's a little folder that says, this is how you make Dunkaroos. This is, like, there's is this an really somewhere? what you wanted to ask <laughs> yes. Melissa when she came on board? Yes, what's I don't, wrong, have, what's wrong with I don't you? have smart questions. I just want to make sure there's like one of those, what's that crazy international seed bank that's like a bunker protected from nuclear? There's like a room somewhere where Dunkaroo <laughs> recipe. Producer, just turn off his mic. <laughs> Dunkaroo recipe exists <laughs> somewhere, right? Unfortunately, like, there is no bunker underground for all the amazing, delicious stuff. But I will say. It's not my business. Yes. The conglomerates certainly keep recipe formulations uh, and are able to bring them back again. Can I uh, uh, sort of on t- uh, tied to that? Why do some of these conglomerates buy a business, then weirdly shut it down? What's the reasoning behind that for I people think, listening? Uh, that will change uh, now that the business fundamentals conversation has changed, meaning they won't look at a business until it hits a certain top line revenue goal and a bottom line profitability goal. But before they were buying into businesses that had top line revenue and cost a ridiculous amount of money to keep moving. What has happened here in the United States, it's happened a little bit in other other, uh, countries, but mainly here is that we as consumers have lost a lot of trust in conglomerates and in the type of food that they make for you or deliver. So you can almost be sure that when a conglomerate purchases a brand, you go back a year later and look at it, it costs less, it tastes different. Uh, and if you compare the ingredient lines, they're, they've generally changed because they have to go through a cost-reducing cycle to make it fit into their system. Consumers know that, they see a brand has been acquired and they might shy away from continuing to buy it, which means that top line that they bought into may not really be as strong uh, as it initially said. But the second is, Does it fold into their system? Can they bring the manufacturing in-house, which would ultimately lower costs? Can they put the distribution on their trucks or inside their warehousing? Do the retailers that they deliver to for all the other products care to carry this particular product? If all of those things don't line up perfectly or be built into a plan, it can be very costly for a conglomerate who, by the way, what's a conglomerate's, uh, you know, DNA built on high volume and very low margin, very, very low margin. And so if you're producing a high cost product 
with virtually no margin, what are you doing? You're eroding their profit that they have to report to shareholders every quarter. And so they have to keep their financials looking strong. And so if these businesses can't fold in quickly and get to cost structures that make sense, it doesn't make sense financially for the conglomerate. Then they go the way of the Dunkaroo. That's why you have to build a strong company, by the way. You can sell to private equity. You can go to the public stock exchange yourself and have investors support you there, like individual consumer investors. You can sell to a conglomerate or you can keep your business alive and just have cash flow uh, considerations that you're paying your investors out with. That's what puts you in control of your company. Melissa, you you brought something up, and, and this is something that I caught on pretty quick in our <clears throat> initial meetings. Um and I, I, not that I, I need to know how you got there, but why Why is this quality that I think you will have an abundance in and I love is such a rare thing, not just in this business, but the world of world at large is you want to just cut through all the bullshit or you, you assume like, hey, there's some things here that we need to address, but we have to address them. So let's just prioritize them at a later date and let's just, you know, you, you just very pragmatic and there's just no nonsense and there's no superfluous bullshit. How come more people just don't act that way? You know what I mean? Like it doesn't take that. It's, it's ridiculous to be able to be bogged down in bureaucracy unnecessarily. So, and do you think it's because you, you, you were in the operational side, so you're not beholden to how things always used to be and you can do it the way you want it to be. It's a good question. I actually think about it a lot uh, and people have called it out frequently. I think I think one is I, I care about people first and foremost. Uh, I built a business on people. I invest in people. Uh, and, you know, we will continue to be a people business at the end of the day. And I want to treat people the way I want to be treated back. And so if I gave you a whole bunch of bullshit or came down on you or were, were critical at you, how would I expect to be treated, you know, as your partner on the flip side? I don't want you to have a fear-based relationship, right? Because we have a check. That's so stupid, especially in your in, in, in a position like yours or any other strong business where they can go get capital anywhere else. Uh, so I think the first is trust in people. The second is it actually does take trust. And by the way, I've been burned many a time by having this exact persona. I just choose not to change it uh, because it takes putting a trusting foot forward first and believing that the party on the other side is going to hold up to their end of the bargain the way that you decide to hold up to your end of the bargain. So I I don't think many people are built on that or they don't want to roll the dice. Uh, But for me, that's where the best relationships and the best outcomes are built because now we're either aligned or we're not. And you're true in, you know, who you are is going to come out at some point. So if it, when it comes out and you're not aligned with me, we're done. If it comes out and we are aligned, that's fantastic. I'm in your corner forever. Um, and so so I think that's what it is. I, I, I just care about people at the end of the day. I know when we um, visited you, Marguerite and I, uh, on the car ride back, we're like, what just happened? <laughs> in the best way possible because it was such a breath of fresh air, you know? So um, didn't you feel that way, Marguerite? Yeah. I hope that people learn something. I learned quite a bit. It's complicated. <laughs> I mean, I it's knew nothing, but I learned quite a bit. 
You, want, you, you got anything to add, Marguerite? I, I mean, it's my fault. We wanted to have Marguerite on the first 10 minutes, but... Oh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, no. I feel like right. Chris wants another 10 uh, minutes to ask more questions to Melissa, so maybe they can do that after. <laughs> no, no. I was the, the only thing that I think Marguerite did not cover is... Uh, what I, we had dinner like a month ago, Marguerite and I. And I didn't get the invite. I know. <laughs> we, we, uh, it, I was reminded that Marguerite and I share a special place in our hearts for black bean spare ribs at Dim Sum. And I feel like it's an underrated thing. And I thought Marguerite would take this opportunity <laughs> to, to shout them out once more. <laughs> but it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> well, I'm going to share with everyone that's something I learned the past few months about Marguerite. And Melissa should know now. Everyone should know. Marguerite loves chewing on chicken <laughs> Chewing on chicken like, bones, like, yeah. Like chewing on the bones, them like all yeah. that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Dave Blown was like away. disgusted. <laughs> I, I mean, listen, I don't, I, I don't want to say something like I judge a book by its cover, but I just never think anybody, let alone Marguerite, would be like, give me the crunchy gifts yeah, that no. I don't personally yeah. want to eat. I, I, uh, I think that was a safe assumption. Yeah, she's a, she's, a, she's a mystery wrapped in an enigma over here. I know. <laughs> and what I love is she said, oh, yeah, you've never seen me do it because I do that in the privacy. That's <laughs> no. one should. That's one should. Um, Melissa, uh, for, I mean, I hope to have you on many, many times. Um, if, if, Someone's listening because there are many, many people in the food business listening to this. And they're like, hey, I'm really inspired by Melissa. I really want to learn more about City. Where can they find out more information about yourself and City? Well, you know, it's funny, Dave. I've spent all these years in the shadows intentionally never coming forward. So there's very little information out there, seriously. Uh, but... Uh, you can go to the website, which is www.cityciddhicapital.co. If you type in .com, you will not get there. So remember the .co. Um, and uh, I, I mean, you can see all of our brands there and there's contact information. And if someone has a, a company and they want to just, you know, give you some information about it, they can they can contact City that 100%. way. 100%. Right? Yep. For for barbe- homemade barbecue sauce, right? Also, she's also very active in the Dunkaroos Facebook group. Man, I was so pissed when they came back out with Dunkaroos. I actually wanted to do it myself. We had talked about like innovating it and getting a new Dunkaroo out there. Then all of a sudden, I go and it's freaking on the shelf again. Can I? Can I? Can I? Can I, can I before we go, safely admit something. You don't know what a Dunkaroo. Is. I don't know what a Dunkaroo. Is. <laughs> Because no there's idea. whole pockets of life that I have. Because I like, I was in kitchens. I've never seen an episode of The West Wing. I've never seen an episode of The Office. I've never seen any of the uh, Law and Order, SUV, UPS, whatever. All there's like so many of them. I would watch. And I've never had a Dunkaroo. So don't feel bad. But Dunkaroos Just. are basically like delicious cookies, whether chocolate, confetti, whatever, <laughs> and a little sidecar of icing. So like, you just dunk a cookie, cookie into icing. icing. And then, oh, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> that's, that's a lot. Well, we got a chicken oh, bone <laughs> eater over here and some Dunkaroos fans. I mean, if I say I like Pop-Tarts, you guys would crucify <laughs> me. That sounds way worse than a Pop-Tart. It's pretty bad for you. It's very good to eat, though. I didn't say eat them. All right. I just said I <laughs> 
Um, all right. Thank all you, guys. Right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate Bye, it. Guys. Thank you, Marguerite. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, you know. Uh, we, we've held you hostage all day doing these podcasts. Thank you so much. You'll hear a lot more of you know and see a lot more of his um, formerly athletic self. <laughs> <laughs> At least as much as, as we can fit on the camera. Yeah. But the top part will be clipped off. <laughs> we look like Muppet Babies, too. <laughs> 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 this fuck guy's so tall. <laughs> He's almost, I want to call him Bull Bull. <laughs> He's way taller than me. <laughs> but for Koreans, you're Bull Bull. Yeah, you're the oh Korean Bull Bull. <laughs> oh, don't do this. You're Bebim Bull over here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um Thank you, guys. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Marguerite.